Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by guest co-host Dr. Mark Christians, and together we interview Dr. Marjorie Lindner Gano about her new book, The Person in Psychology and Christianity. Though I'm talking with two psych specialists, you don't have to know much about psychology to appreciate this conversation. You just have to want to know and understand people. We hope the conversation helps, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. I've always been a sucker for infomercials and personality tests. My fascination with infomercials is a story for another day. But part of my fascination with personality tests has to do with a curiosity about how people grow and change over time. As I've gotten older, I've explored the range of tests from the DISC profile to Myers-Briggs to Strengths Finder, and of course, the Enneagram. I've used all of these instruments in ministry as well as in the classroom. Recently, I've participated in several interdisciplinary projects with professional psychologists and psychological scientists who've alerted me to the limitations of personality tests when it comes to understanding the human person. Most of their critique is directed towards how these tests are used, sort of like horoscopes, allowing us to see whatever we want. But some of the critique is also directed towards the lack of an empirical, scientific basis for most personality tests. Humans, after all, are complex, relational creatures, mysterious in so many ways. And yet the discipline of psychology works hard at unraveling and understanding something of human nature using scientific tools. From their studies, they develop models of the human person, motivation, and change that are often more substantive than personality tests. In a recent book, Marjorie Gano explores and critiques five theories of social development. Specialists will please forgive my oversimplifications. First, Eric Erickson's work on lifespan, in which human personality develops over time in a series of eight stages, each with a unique crisis. Second, John Bowlby's attachment theory, in which the consistency of connection to early caregivers provides us with a working model of what to expect from the world. Third, B.F. Skinner's behaviorism, in which personhood is mostly a matter of learned behavior, conditioning, and reinforcement. Fourth, Albert Bandura's social cognitive theory, in which personal, behavioral, and environmental factors mutually influence each other. Fifth, evolutionary psychology, in which personality derives from adaptive problem-solving in our ancestors. Sometimes these models cohere with or confirm the traditional Christian account, and sometimes these models clash. Our responsibility as Christians is to listen and learn wherever we can, as well as to be responsible and discerning about what we learn. For though humans are mysterious through and through, one of the greatest joys in life is growing in understanding, knowledge, and love for other people. To that end, we hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Marjorie Gano. I'm joined now by two distinguished psychologists. First is my guest co-host, my colleague, Dr. Mark Christians, 
who is a professor of psychology here at Dort. Mark, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Justin. It's good to be with Marjorie as well. Yes, our featured guest is Dr. Marjorie Lindner Gano. Dr. Gano is professor of psychology at Calvin University. She's also the author of a new book that explores and learns from and critiques five theories of social development. She does this in a very accessible way, especially for a non-specialist like me. Uh, the book is entitled The Person in Psychology and Christianity. Dr. Gano, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you. So let's start with these five theories. You write that these are five developmental theories that have been most thought-provoking for you as a professor, but also as a parent. And I wonder if you could tease out the, those two vocations and the value of psychology uh, for both of those vocations. Because I think most parents, we are interested in psychology, at least in a rudimentary way, because we want to understand how to love our kids uh, as, as they get older. But we could also extend that to anyone who wants to know how to love others well, knowing that part of being human is developing and changing as we grow older. So in your study of psychology, how have these various vocations, first of all, just the vocation to love well, but also as a professor, also as a parent, how have all these things intersected and, and overlapped? Uh, well, I picked these psych five psychologists because they are the ones that appear frequently in developmental textbooks. I am a developmental psychologist, which means that um, my job is to try and identify pat predictable patterns of change across time. Uh, and so as opposed to, let's say, a clinical psychologist who might look for things that are atypical, I'm trying to show you what is supposed to happen right. uh, typically in development. So I did pick five theories that are not necessarily the most famous psychologists, but they are the ones that are kind of guiding developmental thought. And I also picked ones that I just found very helpful. Uh, some of them are very helpful to me as a parent, uh, have very kind of practical implications. So two of them, for example... Um, I think helped me just figure out when I look at my children, how should I interpret their motivations? So there was a time when one of my child children was about um, three or four. I think it was four. And um, I heard my infant, uh, just toddler, you know, crying at the bottom of the stairs. And I walked over to the stairs and here's his, you know, older brother just kind of about halfway up the stairwell, kind of grinning at me. And the younger child is crying crumpled at, you know, at the floor. And, you know, and I, of course, I'm like, what is going on here? You know, and, and the oldest child kind of says, you know, very ha gleefully says, well, he was trying to climb up the stairs and I know you and dad don't want him to do that. So I pushed him down for you, you know, and it was this, it was this clear, um, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm clearly made a very bad mistake. I've been misdirected. And I remember thinking at that time, well, how should I interpret this, you know, child's behavior? I come from a very kind of fundamentalist background with a lot of emphasis on our innate rebellion and how evil we are, you know, and it was really clear to me that this child was actually trying to do the right thing. He was trying to model his parents, but in fact, just needed kind of direction to do that. And so some of these theories, I think, just have real practical implications for me. I would literally find myself saying, okay, Erickson would say this, Bowlby would say this, how should I understand this child's underlying motivation? Uh, you know, so some of them were kind of selected for those purposes. Uh, others of them were selected just because I thought they were really interesting in terms of theological questions I was wrestling with. So 
Skinner actually isn't often thought of as a developmentalist, but he intrigues me so much on the question of free will. And in, in terms of evolutionary psychology, I kind of needed to figure out, did I believe in evolution? And so some of them truthfully were kind of intellectual endeavors that I just indulged myself, <laughs> you, know, you know, in really wanting to make. Um, but I really, I guess I don't really see my roles as Obviously, they're very different, but for me, I want to live an integrated life. And so I don't want to say, here's my psychology and here's my parenting, uh, you know, and here's my theology, but I need to make sure that all these things mesh um, and I can make sense of them. And so I really kind of do look for, I guess I would say, uh, the overlap in the Venn diagram, where do all these things come together? And that's what I want to believe. I do wonder, uh, you know, there's always always this perennial interest in personality tests. And I've talked to a few psychologists who aren't huge fans of various popular uh, personality tests like the Enneagram or something like that, or even something like a BuzzFeed yeah. <laughs> quiz, you know, which friend are you or whatever. Um, and, right. and I'm wondering if in some sense, a book like this offers a little bit more substantive a resource uh, for for that impulse to really understand ourselves and understand the people that we love that is a little bit more research-based rather than, um, yeah, maybe you could speak a little bit to that, the popularity yeah. of that sort of pop <laughs> psychology, maybe. Well, you're kind of hitting me early in the interview. When I disparaged the Enneagram in class, I waited till students know me for three months before I let them know that I'm not a big fan of it. <laughs> so, um, and the Enneagram per se is not bad. Uh, it's just not grounded in, you know, it's not grounded, as you say, in science. So if you look at a personality test like the big five, mm-hmm. um, we're going to say, okay, conscientiousness is a trait. And conscientiousness is something that if you are scoring high in conscientiousness, we can point to things in the brain that clearly correspond with that. So people who are high in conscientiousness tend to have a little bit larger frontal lobe. Okay. And so this is a personality trait that's very much based in neurology and physiology. But you look at something like the Enneagram and it's just not based in any kind of, you know, physical basis. Uh, and so I try to tell students, well, you're describing yourself and then the test describes it back to you. Mm. So, okay, that's that, but it doesn't really predict anything. It doesn't really tell us anything. But I but I do that gently because some of them are very, very wedded to their <laughs> results. But yes, I do hope uh, that this book can be perhaps as accessible, but in fact, a little bit more uh, empirically based and at least at least strong theoretically based, uh, you know, in ways that they can relate to. I always say big five needs better marketing, you know, um, yeah, for, for whatever reason, Enneagram <laughs> has really good marketing. That uh, is true. But, <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah, you, you kind of touched on the a good rationale for how you landed on Erickson, Bowlby, Skinner, Bender, and evolutionary psych. But I'm curious on the who got left out. Yeah. Uh, certainly Freud, Titchener, Voot. I actually, before the podcast started, gave uh, uh, Justin a little clue on Bandura and Voot okay. a little bit more. But so how did you how did you sort of rule out and rule in a little bit more on that? Yeah, again, I just really went to, uh, well, part of it is just theories that I teach and that I know and ones that I think are most directly related to the questions I was most interested in. And really, I was really interested in the question kind of of moral tendency. Are we inclined towards good or bad? And some of these theories, you know, spoke pretty directly to that. Uh, but I really did. I looked in the, you know, the intro chapter of several developmental textbooks. And I said, who is listed there in chapter one as framing 
not psychology, but developmental psychology. So you know, I think that really guided my um, exploration. And maybe a follow-up on, on the folks that you did land on. Uh, when I teach uh, lifespan and things like personality mm-hmm. theory, we do dig into the biographies of each of the theorists. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious why you chose to include, because you gave a pretty extensive yeah. uh, biographical <laughs> look at them. Um, and which of their biographies and backgrounds did you find most interesting? Yeah. Again, I'm not sure. In part, I was indulging myself. I just kept finding all these really interesting things about people that I've been teaching about that really made them come alive. But I think we really can't understand what a person believes unless we understand their background. You know, and so and even I mean, we we emphasize and we see the world through the lens that is created for us, I think, in, in childhood, particularly. And as we move on, I think probably the most interesting biography to me was Skinner's. Uh, and so because Skinner is probably one of the theorists that came out more clearly as an agnostic. But the fact that his training was, in fact, so religious uh, and he had these experiences that very clearly uh, caused him to wrestle with religion all his life, but um, also turned him off. You know, so he uh, one of the stories in, that often appears in many of his biographies, he talks about the fact that uh, when he was a teenager, there was a revival held in his town. And so um, the evangelist, one, one of his friend's fathers had been electrocuted uh, early in the week, and the evangelist made the claim that he probably had been electrocuted because he had not been at the revival. And Skinner says, you know, at that, he said, I was very offended that he would say this. And at that moment, I kind of saw the frailness in human religion and the fact that people are kind of speculating you know, and so Skinner had always been from a very young child, very interested in trying to prove things empirically. So he supposedly, as a kid, created a balance scale uh, kind of apparatus, you know, to see if faith could move mountains. He tried to test that empirically. Uh, and given that his early background was interestingly so religious and he tried so hard to prove some kind of religious tenets uh, empirically, I just found his kind of his own development really fascinating that, you know, he and he was always kind of wrestling with this question of God, but said, I, I, I just don't experience it like other people experience it. And as you note in his, uh, I think near the end of it, he studied uh, psychology at Harvard grad school mm-hmm. without any psychology background, which today would not be a typical path yeah. <laughs> graduate school without any background. So uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I find him really fascinating, even though there's things in the book that I obviously say we need to disagree with, you know, or at least, or at least we, and Skinner didn't so much, you know, clearly he didn't say there is no God. He just said, I, you know, I can't really know that. Uh, and so Skinner kind of, you know, talks about different kinds of knowledge and, and, you know, he's very much empirically grounded, but fascinating biography, I think. Yeah, that was one of the things I appreciated the most was those little expositions of their stories, especially because you search so diligently for the faith foundation or any religious connections that these thinkers had. Well, you do know, as you just said, that many of the aspects of their theories are not compatible with a Christian view of the human person. In fact, one of the very first things you do, and then at the beginning of every chapter, you deal with this, what you call a faith-based working model of the human person, which is derived from a Christian view of things. 
And so in every chapter, this model is compared with the developmental theories for compatibility, for contradiction. So can you summarize the working model that you're using in this book for us? Yeah. Well, I will have to uh, just clarify a little bit. I started out uh, exactly the words that you said, uh, you know, kind of sort of the Christian model, or maybe you said a Christian model, uh, and quickly found that uh, the reason this book took 12 years was actually because um, there are so many Christian views of the human person, whether you're talking about a Protestant or, a, you know, a Catholic or an Orthodox view. Uh, and so I really spent a lot of time first trying to figure out my goodness, what really did Paul mean when he was talking about nature and, you know, and these kinds of things. And I, and I'm not, I don't know any Greek or Hebrew, you know, and so it was really tough to kind of navigate some of these issues, but I did eventually land on uh, four themes and um, I'll, I'll just kind of, some of them have the sub points, but that's probably too much for a podcast. So uh, I do say, I first try to figure out kind of what is human essence? What is, you know, what are we at base? Um, and then I talk about different understandings of the image of God with a little bit of preference towards a more contemporary view. So traditionally, we have talked about the image of God as being uh, substantive. We are made for reason and we're so much more rational than other species and things. But more and more, we're seeing, I think, theologians, well, I hate to I hate to tell theologian, my reading of theologians uh, is that, you know, there's more and more emphasis on kind of the functional view that we're here for a purpose to be representing God on earth coming from um, let us make humankind in our image and let or so that they can have dominion and let them have dominion depending on your version. You know, so really sort of saying we are created in terms of our essence, we are created as embodied creatures. Our bodies are really important. Uh, and this embodiment permits us to reason and have relationships and sort of then have dominion over the earth. So that's the first theme. What are, what is our essence? Uh, our second theme is um, then what is our purpose, which follows directly. And I say that while we are on earth, we are purposed for uh, love and work which interestingly is actually Freud's conclusion as well, is that we have kind of more purpose for love and work. And then the theme that is really the most interesting to me in the book is, and theme I really wrestled with the most, is what is our moral tendency? By this, I mean, do we kind of more incline towards good or bad or something in the middle? And so that was really, really kind of, um, I guess, intellectually scary for me because I found myself maybe agreeing a little bit less and less with Augustine's very bleak, Augustine and Calvin's very bleak portrayal sometimes of humankind. Uh, and so I do end up concluding that um, we are structurally good and um, that then we can use this structural good, you know, for both good and bad purposes. But but I don't take a real hard Augustinian, are, we've completely fundamentally changed who we are in a moment in the fall. Um, you know, I look at some other theologians, which I, I can back this up if you like, <laughs> but, uh, but I sort of say we're structurally good, uh, but we can apply this, our structurally good, you know, essence towards good and bad activities. And, and, and obviously we, and, and because we can apply these things, I would say there are inherent inclinations towards both good or bad, but I try really hard to preserve that initial structural, good creational, you know, kind of structure. Uh, and then the fourth theme uh, I call agency accountability, uh, where I just conclude that we are uh, pretty agentic. Agentic is a fancy word that psychologists use to say uh, we have some control over our lives. We can do things and that we're accountable, but that's in various degrees. 
Uh, and then I take those four themes and say, to what degree do the five th- uh, psychological models comport with those and where where do we see some real differences? Yeah, it's really helpful, I think, especially for non-specialists or for students to to begin with sort of this picture and say, okay, these are the things that we're measuring it by because these theories can go in so many different directions. And so to always come back and be like, okay, what is the view of the human person in essence? What is the view of moral capacity? What is the view of accountability or agency is really helpful. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, Mar- well, Marjorie, I want to pick up on probably a follow-up, probably connected to the essence theme, maybe mm-hmm. the moral ethical mm-hmm. tenancy. Uh, you have a quote on page 80 from uh, Hore or Hor. Okay. Uh, it says, quote, <laughs> the quote, uh, the blame that someday psychiatry must someday accept as its burden because of the way it had distanced itself from religion. Can you share a few thoughts on sort of how you've seen psychology uh, as a discipline, sort of make that shift uh, away from religion and, and maybe how it's impacted the way that we study, research, understand psychology today? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple things going on. You know, one is that um, psychology did need to become a science. So, you know, when I introduced psychology, my first day of class in my intro class, I kind of talk about psychology as being a discipline where we ask some of the same questions as theologians, for example, or philosophers, but we try to limit those questions to things that we can at least partially address with the scientific method. So it has to be something we can collect some data on. And we can't, for example, say, okay, is there a God? But we certainly can collect data on questions like how does your childhood experience um, impact your perception of God, you know, the way that you would describe God. And so, I mean, I think the fact that to distinguish ourselves from philosophy and theology and to become a discipline, we really had to, you know, and that defines psychology. Now, if you go to an intro textbook, it's going to say we are the science of behavior and mental processes. And so I think part of it has just been carving our own niche in academic disciplines to say we are going to focus on empirical things, which religion is um, the biggest questions in religion. Is there a God, you know, fall outside of? Um, but I think it also has to do with the fact that kind of going back to your earlier question about whether or not uh, is it important to understand a theorist's life experiences to understand what they believe. And I think, you know, some of our early prominent theorists like Freud, for example, a lot of their own development was in fact wrestling with questions of God. So one of the interesting biographies about Freud, who's not focused in the book, but but he, was that his rejection, open rejection of God seems to be, at least this is suggested by Anna Maria Rizzuto, uh, seems to be more a rejection of his father. So his father was Jewish. As a child, he saw people spit on his father in the street uh, and he said, oh, why doesn't this man stand up to them? He's so weak and I don't want to be that. Uh, and so some psychologists have said, you know, in rejecting God, he was really just rejecting his father, which is kind of his theory that, you know, the father <laughs> stands in for God. Uh, but I think because of some of these life experiences as, as you know, as life would have it, whether it was Freud or Skinner, you know, those are the people who had some bad religious experiences and then kind of actively went out of their way to reject God. But you're, you know, but Erickson, you know, clearly had a much more positive religious experience. And that's why in the book, I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, Erickson of all people 
really just kind of, um, he goes back and forth between, you know, he'll, there'll be all these theological allusions in some of his writings, you know, he'll say things like, you know, love is the dominant value of the universe. And he'll, he'll say, as we get old, we see God, but, you know, through a glass darkly. And, you know, anybody who's at all familiar with scripture is going to say, oh, I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing echoes of scripture in that. I think as I tell my students, you know, the Erickson that you see in your standard mainstream textbook, you're not going to read this about him. But that's one reason I really wanted to kind of dig into is I started reading Erickson biography, Erickson's biography and I kept saying, wow, I never knew that Erickson thought Jesus was really cool, you know, and that Erickson quoted Jesus. And so, uh, so it's kind of a combination of carving a place for ourselves as a discipline and the fact that some of our prominent spokespersons had some very bad experiences religiously, that this is kind of how we moved so far away from it. But there are psychologists, obviously, who have great respect for religion. Yeah, it's interesting because in some Christian circles, of course, psychology is not not popular. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know how to say <laughs> That's that. That's a nice um, understatement, Justin. It's, it's, there's, there's a great suspicion. Let's say there's yeah. a great suspicion of psychology, and there is some in our reform in the reformed family part of the church uh, who insist that if the presuppositions are wrong, if we're not starting at scripture or something like that, that the whole system must break down. And one of the things I appreciated about your book is is how you make it plain that we have much to learn from mm-hmm. these theories of social development, even or maybe even especially the ones that come from more agnostic or atheistic starting points. And I wonder if you could just say more about that. Um, you know, what would you say in response to somebody who says, well, if the presuppositions are wrong, if it's not starting from theistic yeah. faith, then it's it's all going to go bad. Yeah. How do we learn from that? How do we learn from those outside. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you frame this as kind of um, reformed Christians having a problem with this, Uh, actually, because in my own experience, it was much more my fundamentalist kind of uh, upbringing, where there was this very strict line between what was, you know, Christian and what was secular, and you had to avoid everything secular, you know, and it was when I came to Calvin, that in fact, um, you know, new faculty were taught, uh, we look at everything and we take from, you know, every, every idea, we kind of sift through it, we discern the wheat from the chaff, you might say, uh, but we assume that these secular theories can offer us bits of the truth. So Calvin himself, obviously, at Calvin, we like John Calvin, as do you adore it, I'm assuming. <laughs> Uh, but in his commentary on Titus, uh, he actually says, from this passage, we may infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors. All truth is from God. And consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it for it has come from God. Besides, all things are of God. And therefore, why should it not be lawful to dedicate to his glory everything that can be properly employed for such a purpose? So I think Calvin, you know, really gives us um, encouragement. And this is something we try to teach our students to say, God reveals himself in a lot of ways. And part of the essence of humankind, not just Christians, but humankind in general, which was really my emphasis in the book, is to say uh, we have processes of discernment and reason. And many Christians can, in fact, articulate a lot of things very well that can be very helpful. 
you know, if we, we don't, we don't, if we say, Hey, we found a, a great cancer specialist, we don't say, Oh, well, this cancer specialist is an atheist. So I'm not going to be interested in his treatment. You know, we say this person may be, may not have the whole picture, the big picture that we might have, but we certainly take the truth that is there um, and use it to God's glory if we can. And so I think, yeah, it makes me sad when reform people do that because clearly there's a lot in the reform tradition that says that kind of gives us cognitive license to, to, to do things differently, I would say. So. Yeah, that's such a great answer. And just by way of my own biography, it sounds like my biography is similar to yours. Okay. I grew up in a fundamentalist church where we only use the King James Version mm-hmm. and only trusted the Bible on anything having to do with these questions. You know, why read anything else if you have right. the Bible, right? <laughs> and so I found the Reformed tradition as this wonderful, curious, you know, non reductive system, you yeah. know, faith that it was such a <laughs> solace to me. And so obviously there's, there is a branding war going on. What, it, what does it mean to be reformed? Yes. Is, is to be reformed <laughs> to be capacious and curious, or is it to be a little bit more closed? And so I, I love the fact that you're saying this is the reformed legacy. The reformed legacy is to learn from wherever we find beauty, goodness, and truth, we we find God at work. So thank you for that. Yeah. (laughs) So let's take a moment and get a little bit more specific about some of these theories. And the first one that I want to talk about is attachment theory. Mm -hmm. I'm so fascinated by attachment theory. I've been trying to understand it as best I can. And if I'm understanding it correctly, so my folk understanding here of (laughs) attachment theory is that it places this incredible weight on the security that we derive from our early caregiving. So that being securely attached to a caregiver gives us both a sense of secure base from which to explore the world and a safe haven, which is reliable, to which we can return when we're in distress. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could say, what are some implications of that? If we're so formed by our early caregiving, is there hope for those of us who have had less than ideal experiences? And then what are the implications for discipleship, for mission, if so much of the sense of security that we feel in the world is related to early caregiving? Attachment theory was something I really had to wrestle with as well. And I I do have a, a child adopted from a Russian orphanage, which was really my impetus for need, needing attachment theory to understand what was going on in my family. Uh, and so let me just step back a little bit. Uh, yes, that is kind of the outcome to say um, those early caregiving experiences really impact who we are forever. Um, but we need to probably add to that for the viewers to understand attachment theory, uh, that attachment theory is kind of based in the uh, supposition that the brain actually wires itself to survive in its early environment. So, uh, for example, let's say I was in an orphanage and let's say I was not fed very well. You know, the brain would actually wire itself to always to grab food quickly or it would wire itself. Uh, let me give you a better example. It would wire itself to not form too close of bonds with people. So if you think about it, uh, if the child in, in the bed next to me may at any point just disappear completely from my life, from my life, it would not be adaptive for me to put down emotional roots, but it'd be, it'd be more adaptive for me to kind of stay superficial with this person. Okay. And so attachment theory says there's so much going on biologically that the brain is wiring itself to 
be adaptive in that early environment, which for most of us uh, is related to the environment that we spend most of our life in. Now, there are these very abrupt, you know, junctures where a child from an orphanage, for example, may get adopted into a family where what was adaptive in an orphanage setting, like let's stay superficial in my relationships, is not at all adaptive, uh, you know, in, in, in what is typical for the human species. So, yeah, so attachment theory does say you're, your brain is going to wire itself to have certain responses that are adaptive for your early environment that may not be adaptive for other environments. So then the then we get to the question that you asked is, so are we locked into those things? You know, attachment theory does take, at least, at least uh, Bowlby himself, um, takes a pretty pessimistic view <laughs> um, for kids who are in sort of a institutional kind of setting or have a very bad abusive kind of situation. And I think, I think I have to say we're talking about extremes here. Um, at least in Bowlby's attachment theory, that it is going to be pretty hard for them to overcome some of this kind of gut level wiring. And so I really had to wrestle with this. And my students say things like, but but in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is, you know, old is gone, the new has come. Uh, and I have to come back with it to say, yes, that's true. But at the same time, you also see the Apostle Paul really wrestling with these bodily kind of gut level impulses. He says, you know, I'm a new creation, but but there's this war in my members and the good that I want to do, I don't do. And he really kind of talks about physically kind of being trapped, you know, in some bodily responses. And so I think there's this tension in theology, in, in Christianity that's there. And then also that, you know, and I think attachment theory helps us kind of understand that. So that's one way I would say we have this theological tension and attachment theory helps us say, well, what's really, what's the war that's really going on? Let's understand the mechanics of this war. Um, you know, we're going to be responding often in kind of bad learned behavior patterns that are going to be very difficult for some people to override. Now, to, to put a little clarification on this, Bowlby was working with some of the most severely disturbed kids. So I think we always have to say that not every child who's had in a bad attachment situation is going to end up kind of locked into their childhood, you know, behavior patterns. Uh, but now since, since Bowlby's written, we actually are fleshing that out a little bit. We know that there's one particular gene, for example, that uh, it's related to serotonin, which is um, something that helps a person um, stay in a decent mood. Uh, and so children, for example, in orphanages who have a uh, long version of this particular serotonin transporter gene tend to be able to um, overcome some of these difficult things and, and will do well when they move to a better family. But other kids who have a short version of this gene are the ones that Bowlby seemed to be describing who, in fact, have a pretty difficult time uh, overcoming these um, just really hardwired gut level responses. So let me give you an example of, of this kind of gut level responses. As an adoptive mother and a person who does adoption research, I spend a lot of time with adoptive parents and I hear a lot of stories. Uh, and so one mother was uh, had experience where the child had been with her 10 years and so, you know, seemingly good home, et cetera. They were leaving uh, the school and, and the mother said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out and get the car and I'll pick you up. 
Okay. And so the mother actually went to turn around the car. So when the child came out, it looked like the car was driving away. Uh, and the child just completely lost it. This is a middle schooler, you know, who had been with the family 10 years. I, I, I thought you were going to leave me, you know, and there was nothing kind of logically about the situation that made any sense. But her, she had been so kind of hardwired for fear and abandonment that just in the, in the rush of the moment, she was kind of overwhelmed with this fear of I'm going to be left, right? Although this made no logical sense from 10 years of being in a loving home. But there can be these things that are just really kind of gut level wiring that are pretty difficult for us, I think, to, I mean, and, 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 you know, attachment theory would suggest that maybe 30 years down the road, good relationships, you are going to recover from some of that. But for some kids, there does seem to be some, kind of neurological wiring that just is really pretty determining through a mm. lot of their life. And one of the, if I, if I remember correctly, one of the implications that you said for the, for this is that the church needs to support young families. Yeah. Uh, that's the discipleship you know, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, I just uh, went to a political talk recently where I heard that uh, no candidate will ever get elected unless they say that the United States is good. Uh, but but <laughs> since I'm not running for election, I guess I can say that the United States really does a pretty poor job, I think, um, supporting young families compared to other industrialized countries where many countries are giving, you know, paid parental leave so that early bonding can occur and that families are not so stressed. There's just a whole lot of research suggesting that stress on um, the parents actually is showing up uh, in kind of cortisol levels, which is um, stress levels that uh, we would see in the body. Uh, and they will, they will like have kids spit in little tubes to, you know, test their cortisol levels and things. But mm -hmm. it seems that parents who are really stressed in the early years of a child's life, uh, this is showing up in children's stress levels and higher rates of depression and all these things. And so um, I think as a country, we are not doing a very good job really supporting young families. Unfortunately, I think sometimes Christians are the worst at this in the sense that uh, we like to say, well, they don't really deserve to be supported. Maybe they had this child out of wedlock or maybe, you know, maybe they don't have a lifestyle I want to support. But we just then get into this vicious cycle where we don't support these troubled families and then we end up with, you know, generations of, of troubledness. And so InterVarsity asked me to kind of at every chapter to sort of say what would be some practical implications. And it was, mm -hmm. it was pretty easy for me to write it for this attachment chapter to say mm -hmm. we really need to do a better job making sure that our kids are in secure, healthy families early on and that families who need additional support, whether that is decent childcare so they can work and bring down their stress level, investing financially in young families is huge. You know, there's some economists who have, you know, looked at when you get your most bang for your buck investing in people. It's called the Heckman curve. Uh, and it, we know that money invested in people very early in life pays so much more dividends than investing in them later in life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just so we really want to say those first couple of years are so critical for kind of healthy functioning. Yeah, let's go back to this uh, theme of moral tendency. As you mentioned earlier in the podcast, we have this Augustinian model uh, also picked up by Calvin, oftentimes in the Reformed 
a family, we talk about total depravity. I prefer pervasive depravity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but a lot of times, uh, it's a pretty negative view of the human person, negative view of what humans are capable of morally. You point out in your book that there are o- other options besides that uh, in Christian history and tradition. How do you look at that through the eyes of psychology and how psychology either confirms or creates some tension with traditional theological models of moral tendency? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Justin. It is one of my actually favorite, uh, most distressing, but most troubling, but also for me, one of, I guess, the motivating factors of the book, because I do have students who come into my class uh, and will say, who, who have heard the term total depravity, of course, and really believe that humans have no good inclinations whatsoever. Uh, you know, it might be God working through us, but fundamentally, we are just evil through and through, you know. And so I often have to sort of say, well, theologically, we need to understand total depravity as a kind of a doctrine of salvation. There's nothing good enough to save us, but it doesn't mean that all of our inclinations are evil, you know. And so because we're still made in the image of God, we're, you know, created for good works and all these things that we still retain some of these inclinations. So I do with my students try to get them to to think a little bit about this. Are we good? Are we bad? You know, and I guess where this kind of came to a head for me as a psychologist is I just, I really found myself at, you know, age 40, 50, trying to say, what is the mechanism whereby we came, became bad? So, you know, if something is created good. And then obviously the apostle Paul didn't use the word nature quite the way psychologists would use the word nature. And when we use it, what we mean is uh, what is hardwired genetically, but you know, how, how did something, how did the DNA of something change that we were created good and we took this bite of an apple or or fruit uh, and then all of a sudden our DNA changed and we became bad. And, you know, in terms of the mechanics of this, I was really quite troubled. What would that mean scientifically to have a change in nature? Uh, so, you know, that was what really prompted me then to go back to look for other theological views uh, to say, you know, what are some other options? And so there is actually a theologian named uh, Irenaeus who kind of uh, was predated Augustine, who actually said, um, you know, we're structurally good and we then can apply our good structure towards good acts or bad acts. But um, basically the capacity to do good and bad was hardwired, you know, from the beginning. God knew that we were in fact going to uh, sin and that's why he already planned to send Jesus even before we had sinned, you know, and, and very different than a kind of an, an Augustinian view that says, oh, uh, the plan went wrong. So Jesus was then plan B and Jesus, you know, sending someone to save us, you know, had become, became so bad. The Orthodox Church, for example, has been quite influenced by uh, Irenaeus's view rather than Augustine's. Uh, and so I, I find that Irenaeus's view fits a lot better with many of the psychological theories to say we come in with some good, we come in with some tendencies and we really can apply these towards good ends or bad ends. But I just, I just don't know what to do scientifically, uh, you know, to say, well, how does something created with a certain kind of DNA suddenly instantly become 
different DNA. So I was hardwired for good and hardwired for bad. So, you know, now I'm hardwired for bad. Well, how did that happen? Because the person's DNA doesn't change suddenly, you know, the genes you have are, are you have them for life. Uh, and so those questions, I think I, I kind of explore in the book, just because I really needed to wrestle with that. Um, as a psychologist, it's a place where, you know, the theology, you know, I just, I wasn't sure what to do with it to make it kind of mesh with uh, a scientific worldview. I'm really curious, maybe the implication, Marjorie, about reading your book and impact on these conversations you're having with your students, I find really interesting. I can imagine that some are open to it and others are just going to go toward cognitive dissonance and just kind of shut down. What what would be your hope in terms of how your book could impact both specialists and non-specialists in terms of the content, uh, the impact and, and the themes? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess my hope is that this book where I really wrestle with trying to integrate theology with some of the mechanics that are happening neurologically and happening, you know, in terms of um, psychological things, that this would help students stay in the faith. I've had students say I was about done being a Christian because I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile science with faith and I was about to abandon it. And you helped me, you know, sort of see that a person could be both a Christian and a scientist and um, even how some of the, you know, tensions can kind of um, how psychology can give us examples, let's say for um, how, we've got our body warring with us, you know, real, real, real tangible examples. So that would be my hope that students would be there. But um, of course, it's a risky endeavor. So I've also had students accuse me of um, trying to undermine their faith, say, you know, you know, oh, oh, you're, you're, you're taking students faith away from them. Sometimes the book will hit some students right where they are, and it's very helpful. And and other times there are people's faith who will only exist in its unchallenged form. And then when you push them a little bit to, you know, actually think scientifically about how some maybe theological ideas need to be explored a bit, it really, really rattles them. So uh, my hope is that is that for the students who are asking questions, that it will be there uh, you know, as an example, I mean, I particularly, you know, I want most psychologists will be trained in a secular graduate school. And I think my um, mentors really thought that in order to succeed at all in the world of psychology, I would need to compartmentalize, if not abandon my faith. Uh, and so one of the reasons I wrote this actually, I think, was for students who are not in a Christian university, uh, undergrad or grad to say, hey, here is someone who really is clearly theologically committed and clearly wrestles with the science and you can do this. You know, you can be both uh, and you can actually have even a more comprehensive understanding of the person than you would get from either of the disciplines in and of themselves. Thank you. That's very helpful. And I, I'll give a shameless plug that I know this will show up in my lifespan development. Thank class you. Yeah, yeah, you know, actually, um, it, it shows up in mine as well. But I cut out some of the uh, critique, and I just give them parts of it because I want them to wrestle with, <laughs> with it. So it'd be interesting yeah. for me to see how it's being used in other classes. And so I'd love to hear, you know, what parts you give them and what parts you maybe have them speculate on in papers and things like that. <laughs> 
nothing would please well, me more. You know, as academics, we don't write for the royalties. We, we just hope someone will read the book. Yes. <laughs> so. Well, our guest has been Dr. Marjorie Lindner Gano, and the book is The Person and Psychology and Christianity, a very accessible, very helpful exploration of five theories of social development. My co-host has been Dr. Mark Christians. Mark, Marjorie, thanks so much for uh, the conversation today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.